Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Never Strays Far is brought to you by Chapter 3 and the Roadbook Cycling's Definitive Almanac. You can buy the very few remaining 2018 and 2019 first editions as a special bundle price for just £55 by visiting www.theroadbook.co.uk. And if you enter the discount code CLASSIC, we'll throw in a free musette and the very beautiful worth £7.50 with every order. And Chapter 3, the brand I created, founded in 2015, and it's uh, something that I've uh, always wanted to do, is bring to cycling a, a more creative individual style that isn't just based on one discipline, but multi-disciplines. And we're on the journey, and I hope you'll join us. Go to chapter3.com and see what we've got. Uh, there are lots of stories, there's products, there's uh, everything we hope that will help you find your next chapter in cycling. This episode of Never Strays Far contains a factual error about the Mont Ventoux Denivelle Challenge. Do not throw your audio recorder podcast machine out of the window when you hear it in frustration. It is corrected later on in the podcast. In the meantime, enjoy this podcast and in particular David Miller's Peter Sagan story. David, I can't keep up. I honestly, seriously can't keep up. We had four months of nothing and the reboot has swept me aside mentally and physically already. I feel like an old school racer. I've just arrived about 10 or 15 minutes ago from driving from Turin um, over the most of the newly, um, uh, the new route actually in, of Milan San Remo. We'll come on to that. And I'm now in a hotel in the centre of San Remo. It's sweltering hot, but this hotel has not been redecorated or touched since the days of Brian Robinson when he enjoyed such success in this race. It is, honestly, it is proper old. You'd love it. <laughs> You'd absolutely love it. I'd love it. Or rather, there's a, there's a couple of things on this. I, I messaged, because um, my sister, um, which we'll get onto in a bit, she sent me, um, she said, did you see that crash yesterday? And which we'll come on to afterwards. And then I went and looked and I was like, oh, wow, that's insane. Then I looked at other stuff. And then all of a sudden, like you said, within a few days of cycling starting again, it's all back to bonkersness. Yeah. And, and it's that idea where we're almost where you're, um, you've gone from loving your hotel room and it being romantic to all of a sudden you're back in a broom cupboard. Yeah, reality, reality is kicked kick back in again. I've got just a pay- and But it's a, it's a great... <laughs> Yeah, go. Just to paint, just to paint you a picture, David. You can actually see me on a dodgy Zoom connection, which I'm streaming on 4G because obviously the hotel has absolutely no Wi-Fi here whatsoever. But um, my view from my from my window is of rubbish bins and uh, and security rusty security grills over kind of like empty, um, slightly scary townhouses just set up. You know, um, and at the same time, I've got one of those uh, very very typical like postage stamp size televisions 
fixed to my wall, which you can just about see. But it's showing a bike race. And, Fact, I can just about see it. And, and I think you've got yeah. a feed of it as well. Because we're talking, um, and as we're talking, the racing is in full flight in France. It's a second edition of the Mont Ventoux de Nivelle Challenge, or whatever it's called. And um, there are, as we speak, 37.8 kilometres to go. There's a breakaway. I've absolutely no idea who's in it. They're one minute and 18 seconds ahead. And Astana are on the front of the peloton because Miguel Angel Lopez is there. As well as a bunch of hitters, isn't they? Fabio Ruz there, Nairo Quintana. I haven't had a look at the start list, actually. I think that's all I know off the top of my head. But basically, we're going to try, as we record this podcast, to both of us, aren't we, to keep an eye on the race and kind of do a live audio blog. Except you've got a business call at three o'clock yeah, and the race uh, might not have finished. <laughs> in 38 minutes, which with 38 k's to go, that means they're going to be hitting the bottom of Vontu in about 25 minutes. Right, right. I think, which is good, so I'll get to see it. You'll get, so, see so I'll get of... there, just you're going to have to carry Vontu. I'll carry Vontu. Yeah. I'll take it. But it's, it's interesting. Yeah, okay. You'll carry Vontu. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it actually yeah. finishes at but it's interesting. Venom. But it's interesting. Already... Uh, but it's, it's interesting because I'm watching it right now and there's a full team of Astana on the front. And so I guess Fugel's saying if he's there, because again, I haven't seen the start list, which would make sense. It's, it's, it's the um, other one. It's Mi- Miguel Angel. Sorry, Dave, to interrupt. It's Miguel Angel Lopez. Miguel yeah, Lopez. Yep. It's Miguel Angel Lopez. So that's, they've got two riders that are just amazing. So Miguel Angel Lopez is here. It's, uh, it's interesting to see. And I'm kind of fascinated when you see we're seeing a totally new form of racing now. Because there's no games being played. With 38k, 37k's to go, one minute 15 gap to the break. I'm a team going full gas. It's these are kind of these aren't normal tactics. There's no games being played anymore. Everyone's just racing. Like every single race is just do or die. It's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Just in the interests of actually trying to be trying to be accurate and informative, um, yeah. Quintana's there. Miguel Angel Lopez is there. Uh, Fabio Aru is there from UAE Team Emirates, but not um, Pogaccia. Richie Port and Giulio Ciccone are riding for Trek Segafredo. Uh, there's no Roman Bardet, but there is Pierre Latour for AG Tuala Mondial. And the other riders of note, I think, probably are for Cofidis, Jesus Herrada and Guillaume Martin. And that's kind of about it, unless I've missed any real big players i don't think i have that's the, they're, they're the favorites that i've listed so Thibaut pino there no <laughs> no he's it's not like it's because it was just surprising yeah it it's is kind of it's surprising i mean bade obviously because he crashed out he had a big crash in okitan but but um yeah okay cool well you've just told me exactly what's going on which i didn't well know. nor did i until i looked it up just a second ago um what i do know <laughs> yeah, always prepared david never strays far and always prepared um what we do know, though, is uh, you alluded to it, the crash um stage one of Katowice stage in Poland um, on uh, horrifyingly on the anniversary to the very day of Bjorg Lamprecht's crash at the Tour of Poland that cost him his life. Totally different circumstances. Um, and on this occasion, it was a high speed crash in the final couple of hundred metres of a bunch sprint that had unfolded on a downhill approach to the finish line where... I think in in the past, I mean, this this downhill finish has been criticised and in the past, um, riders have recorded speeds in excess of 100 kilometres an hour on this sprint. Um, what makes this um, particular crash so hard, and I urge you not to see, I mean, you'll you'll have either seen the images or you won't, but don't go and look look them up if you if you can avoid it. Um, it's the violence of the collision. It, it was um, Fabio Jakobsen, the Dutch national champion, Deconic quick step sprinter, who... Um, was severely injured. Uh, we understand overnight he was 
put in an induced coma. The good news is uh, what we understand from the medical bulletin is that there are no injuries to either his spine or his brain. Uh, he has sustained multiple other injuries, though, and he's in a serious but stable condition. And it's just one of those um, chilling moments again, David. You had them throughout your racing career one way or another, and it's happened again. Yeah, and I think that's... Um, and <clears throat> I referred to, to the message I sent my sister last night, and what I'd said was, cycling's back and it's still bonkers <coughs> excuse me and it's still bonkers because that shouldn't happen it's been nearly a decade where they've had that finish and riders have said it's um treacherous and as you said i, I saw um on social media uh, a few riders saying different things and fran ventoso a spanish rider that i know well said that why aren't the cpa doing something the union how is it possible that we have a sprint finish we do over and over again where riders have seen 105 kilometers an hour and the and yet the barriers uh, the finish 500 meters aren't designed for that type of uh, finish because the riders are still going to do the same things they're still going to push each other they're going to still race for the win and what happened was uh, i mean the crash was going to happen whatever happened because it was one of those situations what was bad was the the protection that separates the riders from the general public didn't protect them from the general public or themselves and it all, all just, the moment he hit it it all broke apart and you think well that's an absolute first principle the the finish line those last couple of hundred meters and we're talking i mean you referred ned uh, uh, generously that it was in the final cu- couple of hundred meters it was in the last 50 meters was it Yep. You know, it's it's really close. Yeah, it's so close to the finish line. And within the rules of what was created um, within the USA regulations, the last three kilometers have to have this uh, set uh, barrier system, uh, which I don't think is clearly uh, defined or designed. And yet you will then go to different countries, different regions, different race organizations. There's no consistency. What you need is every single world tour because let's let's be pragmatic you can't have it for all the categories of bike racing because it's a huge investment and also the levels and the speeds aren't quite as high and also within any sport as you go up through the ranks everything gets better and better organized but you would like to think at world tour level as a world tour racer when you're racing the best in the world and you you've got this is your job that every single race you do the final three kilometers are exactly the same and what happened there was exactly what cycling is and it's just mad that it can happen at this level where a rider is now in intensive care stable because of essentially uh, a UCI problem and a a union problem uh, that just can never gets rectified. ASO and and the Tour de France, I'm, I think, David, are the only... Uh, so, obviously, they, they use the same infrastructure on their other races, like Paris-Nice and the Dauphiné. Possibly not the Vuelta, actually, I don't know. Um, but they're the only race organisers, I think, who have these bespoke um, barriers for the final kilometre, at least, which, um, which don't have the feet sticking out into the road and have them tucked under. And uh, where the policeman stand is obviously slightly recessed so that nobody, you know, and all that kind of... So they're designed quite specifically for bike races now as you say it's actually a it's a kind of a budgeting issue people forget how threadbare the the race a lot of races resources are because by and large barriers are hired in that are um, crash barriers for crowd control 
in various municipalities and they are there's nothing that differentiates them from the sort of things that are used at rock festivals or, or, or you know that they are just bog standard barriers mm. with a bit of advertising draping over them mm. a considerable investment would have to be made for, yeah. for these barriers to be sort of designed so, i mean this is so this is me in my kind of uh, again my pragmatic business mind sort of way You'd think if we had a, a, a very high level of organization and uh, unity, be it unions and general association at a, a racing level and organization level, in order to have a world tour race, you would have to use this type of barrier. Yep. And we supply it, and we have a supplier. Yep. And you have to buy those, and you have to own those. Otherwise, you can't do it. Yep. And it's, a, the, I mean, that's just. I mean, that's good business, but it's also that's what you would expect uh, the type of sport that we have. A world tour race must must use this type of barrier that has been designed yep. to do this job. And you can't do this race unless you own those six kilometers of barriers for the final three Ks with all this stuff that we go through. And you know what? You only have a few big race organizers in the world that are doing these races. They put that in their budget. And then it, it reduces their liability as well, and that becomes. But the, unfortunately, within uh, the UCI and the CPA, they don't have the, the the intelligence to do that. David, we're looking at Mont Ventoux. It's in the distance there. I can see there's thirty point four kilometres to go. The gap's still one twenty four, so not much has changed in that race. Um, I would direct any listeners, uh, if I can, to a blog I wrote on the Roadbook Journal website, which is our. Uh, last night, I just I just penned a few words about Fabio Jakobsen. If you want to know more about him, um, I can't say that I know him well, but I've had a few encounters with him, most specifically at the Tour of Turkey last year, where I was commentating at the bike race, and um, and I spent a bit of time in his company. And he's a he's a, a terrific kid, really. Just one of those, you know, you meet people who are uncomplicated, and I don't mean that in the pejorative or, or derogatory sense, David. Uncomplicated in the very best sense of the word, in that. There appears to be with him, when you talk to him, no agenda, no playing games or trying to put on airs and graces. There appears to be, uh, um, it just appears to be a very honest kid who um, is loving his life. I mean, you know, just gets such a thrill out of racing a bike. And um, yeah, I wish him all the best. I, I'm, I'm delighted. Yeah. I'm delighted that the news coming out of Poland is better than we had at first feared. But it's whatever happens, it's going to be a long road back. For Fabio Jakobsen, but I wish him, wish him I, all the best. I, I remember last year when we when he was coming, kind of uh, for want of a better term, out of the woodwork. Uh, you spoke so highly of him after having spent time with him, and I think that's uh, yeah. We'll put it in the show notes uh, the piece you wrote about him. It's one of the, the the great things about what we both get to do with the road book and me with chapter three. Occasionally, we just get to write what we want to write yeah. on our own terms, yeah. uh, in and we don't. It's just it's our thing. And so I would recommend to people to go and read that. Read that. You called it to Fabio. Uh, so, yeah, we'll put it in the show notes and, and definitely do go and read that. Yeah. No one can tell us what to do, David. It's all ours. We're masters of our own. No one can no tell, one us. Can tell us like, what to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd love to be able to talk about women's racing after that astonishing display by Annemiek van Vluten uh, at Stradibianchi. But... I can't because there is none. And it's a tremendously unfair situation that the Women's World Tour Peloton finds itself in. Stradibianchi was only their second World Tour race, by which I mean the second day of World Tour racing, because the only other one was a one-day race back in uh, 
the beginning of February, the Cadell Evans uh, Great Ocean Road Race down under. They've had two days of racing so far, and they're going to have to wait until the 26th of this month, two days before the Tour de France starts again for the next one, the Grand Prix de Pluie. And then three days later, they have La Course by the Tour de France, which is obviously a one-day race as well. Um, they've had so many more cancellations on their calendar. Uh, the Giro Rosa is still scheduled to take place um, in September, from the 11th to the 19th of September. And after that, uh, cross fingers, you do have a series of races in the Ardennes Classics. Flesh Vallon, liege Baston liege Amstel Gold still penciled in. But I think that, you know, the verdict is very much out on whether or not we see those races that, that deep into the autumn actually take place. Uh, but it's, it does seem... You know, they'll be sitting at home. They're, they're, a lot of them will be cycling fans, if you like, as well. And they'll know the men's peloton and they'll be following them. But they'll be sitting back after an, yet another training round, watching more and more men's racing on the TV as it proliferates across our screens. And they just don't get to pin numbers on. Yeah, it's a shame. And, and I, I guess I've said this before. And again, it's a pragmatist in me. The economics at the moment just can't allow it. Uh, if the men races stop, then there won't be any women's races. Uh, because at the moment everybody's threadbare, and even the the men's peloton is reduced to a bare minimum. So I think at the at the moment it's it's a case we've just got to make sure it's for the women's racing it's quality over quantity. So to make sure some organisers put the effort in and really do put on great events with TV coverage. So even if there there aren't the means to do uh, the volume of racing, then let's hope that there's a will to put on really great events for them rather than just sideshows. Yeah, indeed. And of course, you know, this is a debate for another day, but of course, you know, there is now a determination to get a women's Tour de France stage race back up and running in the years to come by ASO. So Mm -hmm. it's one to keep an eye on. Uh, In the meantime, yeah, the the men's racing, I say, has come thick and fast. Um, We, last time we potted, we were talking about the Route d'Occitanie, which was duly won by Egan Bernal, our, the overall, Sonny Colbrelli took the last st- stage. Um, Egan Bernal took the win. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. There were three stages in total. Yeah, he did. He did take the overall. Yeah. He took what was interesting with that was um, obviously, obviously with the fact that it's Froome racing with Bernal and the Ineos hit squad. And yeah, the the immediate takeaway is that Froome finished ten minutes down. Yeah, but there's more but to it than he that, was isn't one there? Of the final. There's a lot more to it than that. Explain. In the sense that he was put in a role called Berod, I think it was, which was the summit finish. Mm. He did actually rip everyone to pieces on it before pulling off. And then Sivakov, uh, kind of who is the golden boy at Ineos at the moment, this uh, the, the Russian, the French Russian, <laughs> who's uh, an amazing bike rider. Uh, he finished, he ended up doing the, the classic graph work if you like, that Ineos are capable of doing, where the first lieutenant finishes second in the race. That's what Sivikov did. Uh, he delivered. By the time that Bernal attacked, it was only him and Siv- only him and Sivikov left. So they essentially, the whole race was dropped when Bernal actually did launch his decisive attack. But the, the reason the race was put under such stress in the earlier slopes was Chris Froome going very, very hard. And that's, uh, it's interesting because, yeah, it's you look at the results, it's 10 minutes down, but that's really difficult to do, you know, and it's uh, it does mean that there's something he's not, he's not completely lost it. There is, there is potentially a storm brewing, but equally it could just 
peter out is there do you think i mean we're listening this is pop psychology here and we're all guessing none of us were on the team bus but is there Froome doesn't strike me as a rider who does sort of doubt himself very often but if there were doubts in his mind about his own form is it a way of um, perhaps keeping your cards close to your chest to put your hand in the air and say, no, no, I'll just, I'll ride for Egan today and I'll do my bit. Is it a way of just avoiding the subject to a certain extent? Can you, do you see what I'm getting at? Saving it for another day? Yeah, I see. Yeah. I understand completely. Cause I, I mean, I've been in that situation as well. And if you're, if you're Machiavellian uh, and also very experienced and Chris Froome, I think uh, could be both is both i think which <laughs> I think he might be yeah. champions are uh, yeah champions are and um so you're very pragmatic if you want to improve and he's got to improve really quickly you're better to go for the really big efforts and rather than just hang on and get slowly blown out so what he's doing is doing the classic yeah i'll take the the earlier effort and just go max because that's actually a much more productive uh, training uh, effort than just hanging on and getting dropped so and also it's as you said just for the ego and perhaps just for the status it assumes his role within the team regards the fact that he is willing to to do the the, the, the shitty jobs uh, which for somebody who's a five times four time tour de france Freudian slip a four-time tour de france winner uh, <laughs> that would be perceived as a shitty job but it's actually it's good for him it, it ticks all the boxes he's showing his team is willing he's actually getting a great training effort so who knows? Well, I think I um, erroneously suggested that Thomas Bernal and Froome were all in the Occitanie. They weren't actually. Geraint Thomas didn't start it in the end. But all those three are due to start the next one, the Tour de Laine, which is before the Dauphiné. I mean, the Tour uh, de Laine, having those three riders, is just ridiculous, isn't it? I love that race. You talk very highly yeah. of that race. Tour de Laine. I love that race. It was like a. So we say the Dauphiné is a, a mini Tour de France. Or the Tour de Laine is a mini Dauphiné. It's kind of, it's just such a beautiful little race. It's a, it's in the Alps. It's on these amazing climbs and actually not far. I mean, it's, it's just a, an amazing race. And so, yeah, to have all these big riders there is, is awesome. I have just spotted, uh, well, I can see some, some family, some family business that you're trying to tend to in, at home. Um, I've just spotted on my screen, uh, um, just keeping half an eye, an eye on this French race and the big Astana train. They've just gone through a feed zone before the climb, David. And I've just spotted the Russian nas- national champion. Yeah, so this is... Who, who was a rider I wanted to talk about because Alexander Vlasov, the Russian national champion who moved from Gazprom Rusvelo to Astana, uh, is riding today, I would imagine, in support of Miguel Angel Lopez. And Vlasov was the only rider in the frame at the uh, Okitani as the two Sky leaders, Bernal and Sivakov. Vlasov finished 23 seconds down on Bernal in the general classification and, uh, and uh, Sivakov was 14 seconds down. So it was a very, very impressive ride from Vlasov and he beat Thibaut Pino into fourth place, knocked him off the podium of that race. And uh, he's a, you know, a name we hadn't reckoned with at all going into this year, but if he carries on riding like this and performs again, well, on today's climb, then we'll have to take even more notice of him. Yeah, we will. And this is, uh, I'm quite thankful that they've gone this fast because we're only 8Ks from the, the foot of Vontu and going through. This is always one of the most amazing things about racing around this region of France, Provence, and especially Vontu, is that there's very few places you can see. We're just looking at it now as a classic camping car with all the flags out. There's always all, all this wind as well. So normally when you're doing a 16K climb, You've had numerous big mountains before, 
or it's been a specific through a valley. But this is a, you go through almost rolling terrain crosswinds before you hit the base of Mont Ventoux. And it's the heat is just horrendous because it's, you're not in the mountains. You're in deep South France. And so that's what, the, these are some of the elements that just make Mont Ventoux so special. And I think this, for so many riders in this race today, they've been training, they've been on the lockdown, the training. This is such going to be a pure decider of whether the training's worked because you can do all the numbers, you can have all the data, but it's uh, this is such a pure uh, test of where you're at. And I think that's why everyone here is is going to be genuinely nervous. This isn't a race that normally they'd be too stressed about. But actually today, it's, this is going to be a proof of form. Yeah, that, that looks to me that they're on that road out of Bedouin, aren't they? I think I recognize it towards the, the foot. They'd have to go that way, wouldn't they, to get to Chalet Renard. So that seems to be where yeah, they are. They're not far now. Yeah, I think that's where you dropped me off on, what was the year Froome ran up Mont Ventoux? 2016, was it? 2015, 2016? 2016, um, yeah, that great day. 16, yeah, I think that's <laughs> where you dropped me off on the Brompton on that really windy day. One of day our great adventures. just drove off in a Maserati. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't fancy it that day did you <laughs> oh my god that, that was, was a grind just, that ended up being my worst ever cr- climb up von two was in a was in a white maserati trying to <laughs> quietly go through crowds <laughs> then we we went over the other we went over the other side david and you got a call from your mate alistair campbell do you remember Oh yeah, when, and you went. You went. Yeah, and so oh, I'll tell like, you what, Ned. I'm just going to go to Alistair Campbell's villa and have a sort of lemonade and you know chat politics for a bit. I'll see you later, and and you just dumped me out again. And because we were all commentating, the, the trucks were parked up not at the top of Mont Ventoux, whether they were miles away near Malusen somewhere. In fact, I think they were in Malusen, <laughs> and I had to then ride into this absolute yeah. tornado of a headwind for 20 more kilometres on my Brompton to get to Malasen. And this, I remember this French, yeah. this old French... While I'm having lemonade and coffee. Yeah, while you're just in a Maserati chilling with one of the most influential, you know, political figures of, you know, the late 20th century. And, and um, anyway, but I remember this old boy with a, um, what's that enormous old race? Uh, Paris-Brest-Paris, which is, I think, still a sportive oh, yeah. rather than a race. And he yeah, had a Paris-Brest-Paris yeah. Paris sort of um, jersey on, and he was all sort of mahogany legs and all that, in his, probably in his 60s. But he, he came shooting past me and then slowed a up. beautiful man. Slowed up and then, and then kind of ordered me onto his wheel because he could see I was on this ridiculous folding bike trying to ride into a headwind. <laughs> and I went, no, no, you're all right, mate. You're all right, because I didn't want to hold his wheel. But he absolutely insisted. And that was even worse than riding into a headwind. A horrendous day. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh god, I remember I remember how perfectly manicured Alistair's lavender was. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. That's always haunted <laughs> That's haunted me since. You're haunted by the, the organizer of Parry Breast Parry. I'm haunted by Alistair Campbell's lavender. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the most David Miller thing you've ever said. <laughs> I'm haunted. Uh, how do you how do you do that i'm like how do you do that how do you manicure your lavender like that alistair (laughs) not why did you go to war in iraq (laughs) how did you manicure your lavender oh never strays far let's come back to bike racing um there was a random Italian race a couple of days after Stradibianchi that a lot of the Stradibianchi peloton took part in. And I keep forgetting the name because it's never been raced before. It was like a, oh, it was like a, res- it was like a combination of three other races all rolled into one. And they called it the 
Uh, so, yeah, because they used to have the triptyque, didn't they? Yeah. Um, so, what did they call it? Grand, well, I think it is the triptych of Lombardy or whatever. Anyway, it, do you remember how hot Stradivianchi was? It stopped being hot. Gran Trittico Lombardo. Oh. There we go. And it was won by Gorka Izaguirre. Uh, Greg Van Avermaet was third. It was, um, wasn't a mountainous race, but it was hilly. And it was absolutely torrential rain from start to finish. So um, Italy went from burning sunshine to uh. torrential rain and then back to burning sunshine again for the race that I commentated on yesterday, David, Milano, San, no, not Milano, San Remo, Milano, Torino, um, which was a bit different this year because it didn't feature the Superga climb, uh, which it normally does ever since 20, well, actually ever since whenever, this is the interesting thing about Milano, Torino. So it switched place in the calendar a number of times. It's been raced since 1876, oldest bike race in Italy, but for most of its history, it served as a warm-up race for the riders uh, uh, who are going to race Milan Sanremo, just like this year, actually. And the reason that they introduced the Superga climb uh, and then a finish into the Fausto Coppi Velodrome in the outskirts of Turin was because it kind of replicated the Poggio. It's a similar so- size of climb, and um, it was considered good practice for them. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, in 2012, they said, actually, the Superga is the climb. Let's make them do it twice, and it finishes on top. And Alberto Contador won the first edition of the Superga finish on Milano Torino, which was his only ever one-day race he won. Um, uh, was that was that with uh, when Michael Rusty Woods finished? He then won it the next year. Didn't he won he? it last year. Last year it was last year because that's he won when it last I was year. like, "Whoa, that's a totally different race." And before that, yeah. Thibaut Pinot okay, won it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, they've all had a go at winning it, um, but this year it was they just took out all the climbs. There were no climbs. It was so. It attracted oh, all yeah. the sprinty types who want to win Milan San Remo. Uh, they were pretty much all there. I mean, the only two sprinters who weren't there of note were riders who really wouldn't fancy Milan San Remo anyway, and that was Dylan Groenewegen and uh, um, Fabio Jakobsen, who of course came to <clears throat> came to blows in Poland instead. Um, and it was fairly chaotic. Peter Sagan in the run-in to uh, the finish almost almost touched Daniel Oss's wheel. He was right in the heart of the bunch and they were travelling rapidly with about five kilometres to go. And the helicopter shot just sees him. I think he just, just slams on the brakes before he touches Daniel Oss's wheel and he wobbles and Sagan almost comes off. He veers off to the left and basically wipes out Eve Lampart from De Koenig Quickstep, pushed him straight into, ah. straight into a bit of, thank God, padded road furniture into a crash mat um, but that then brought yeah. down another, about half a dozen other riders. Um, Lampart was quite. Ba- Lampart broke his collarbone, um, but it could have mm. it could have been a lot worse. Uh, Sagan stayed upright. Yeah. Um, Koenig Quickstep were riding for Sam Bennett. They were now all over the place because Lampart was a key mm. component of that, and they were looking for Bennett, and it all got mm. really messy. Um, the only lead-out train of notes that seemed to be functioning properly on the final turn in with a, about 600 meters to go was. Group Armour FDJ and uh, Jacob, Jacopo Guarnieri did an absolutely immense lead out for Arnaud Demar. Just at the point where Demar was, uh, where Guarnieri was about to, you could just sense he was about to peel off and leave Demar exposed. Demar noticed that Sagan, with 200 meters to go, had got a bit twitchy and, st- and, and went. Just over 200 meters to go, Sagan was the first of the sprinters to sprint. Demar saw that like a flash came off his, the, the wheel of his lead-out man, switched across to Sagan, went with him. Ewan then went with Demar. And you thought, well, Caleb Ewan's in pole position here. 
But Demar then came round Sagan and held off Caleb Ewan and won by a bike length. Um, Wout van Aert was in mm. the mix as well. He ended up finishing third, which tells you all you need to know about exactly what we were talking about the other day, yeah. David. I mean, to, to win Stradibianchi and then place third in a bunch sprint of that calibre. Three days later. Three days later is just extraordinary. And he was actually finishing mm. faster than anyone. Yeah. Um, but I will, when I saw these results, I will, I will be absolutely amazed if Wout van Aert doesn't win Milan San Yeah, right? Carry on. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's yeah. talk about Milan San Remo. Let's talk yes. about Milan San Remo. Um, finally, because yeah. I have just... Actually, can I just jump do. in with an anecdote? Briefly? Love you too. Uh, Peter Sagan. So Peter Sagan, um, so you were just referencing his kind of sketchy nature and the fact that he uh, just missed Daniel Oss's wheel, his teammate, and then skipped across and hit other people. I remember in the early years, because I was there right from the beginning of, of Peter Sagan hitting the pro peloton, and I decided one day because I don't involved in don't get involved in bunch sprints, uh, and we didn't have a team at the time that had a bunch sprinter. So I was on good form, and I thought I'm just going to go and follow him around, and just out of curiosity. And so I ended up it was a tour of Switzerland. Must have been about twenty four, uh, twenty eleven, twelve, thirteen. I can't remember. And it was one of the most insanely terrifying things I've ever done in my life was I decided to stick on Peter Sagan's wheel for the final 5Ks of a bunch sprint in, in Switzerland. And just watching him, just pushing people out the way, skipping, getting out of crashes. At one point, an, a, a traffic hike, like a, a basically an intersection in the middle of the road appeared and it was curbed and his wheel just was scraping along it and he was any other bike rider in the world. I was kind of braking and moving out. Then you're down. There's no way you're getting out of this. He was <laughs> scraping, leaning, and then just somehow pulled it up, jumped it up, put it in the middle, and then jumped back onto the road again. And at that point, and then I was like, oh, this is amazing. I thought I'm just going to keep following you. And it got to the point where with about 500 meters, I was like, nope, you are absolutely insane. <laughs> It's because I'd I'd watched him for four for five minutes, six minutes, just do things that I'd never seen another bike rider do, and then when all we see on TV is him winning the sprint or doing these things. If you were with him in the middle of the peloton, it's the craziest roller coaster you will ever ride in your whole life, and it was just and it's it's still totally imprinted on my mind, and I'd never do it again. I never did it again. So I was like, well, you are a special person because you are not just this physical beast. Your technical abilities are off the grid. So I guess he's still doing that to this day. He's just not got that final punch. He yeah. wasn't, he wasn't so bad. He wasn't bad yesterday, David. Mm. I have to say mm. my prediction yeah. was, oh, I was sweating on my prediction with about 100 metres to go. But he did get beaten quite comfortably in the end. Um, Were you gripping the seat? I was, yeah. Added an extra level of urgency to my commentary for sure. God, I tell you, that was a brilliant description. My my heart is beating a little bit faster just imagining what that must have been like. You should have you should have just stuck on his wheel through those last five hundred meters and then jumped him in fifty meters to go, David, and won the stage. Yeah. That, that yeah, would have been the most Peter Sagan I'd thing have been to happen, wouldn't it? <laughs> wouldn't it? Always, oh, no. always oh, I have God. unluck. Always. And today was David Miller, he lucky. Uh, but I have hey. unluck. Hey. <laughs> hey, blue guy. Yeah, hey, yeah, hey, you, David Miller guy, you sprinty guy. Your time trial, huh? <laughs> what are you doing on my wheel? <laughs> um, uh, talking about riders I like, and I do love Peter Sagan. Talking about riders I like, uh, Damiano Caruso. 
Do you know Damiano Caruso? Because surely your career is overlapped by years and years. I yeah. do. I, I know Caruso. Caruso is like one of those, um, he's a staple of the peloton. Correct. He's, uh, he's respected by everybody. And, yeah. and uh, he's kind of slightly red-haired and he's from Sicily, which means that he's probably descended from the Normans. That's... Yeah, I've got. Uh, I've just. It. I've made that up slightly, but let's just imagine that's the case. Um, no, I haven't made up the fact that he's slightly yeah. red-haired. What, but anyway, this is not relevant. What is relevant is he took a he took a fabulous win that I caught the end of in a one-day race in the Basque country called the Circuita, probably badly pronounced de la Get Getcha. Is it Getcha? G E T X Getcha. Getcha. Yeah, G E T X A. Yeah, yeah. Getcha. It's Basque. Basque. Yeah. Very Basque. Yeah. So it's X is C H. And um, yeah. and it was typical Basque kind of terrain, uh, but it had a really, uh, he launched a solo attack. In fact, Landa, his teammate, because they both ride, let's keep abreast of this because it's all changed. They both ride for Barry Merida, those two. Landa um, and he were working over the, the, the front group. Landa attacked and then Caruso countered and went clear a long, long, long way out. And it was kind of an interesting field, actually. It was a little bit Milan San Remo-ish in the sense that it had attracted um, some some punchers, let's put it that way, and some sprinters, because the final 700 metres were uphill, and it was uh, like, uh, ooh, I wonder, wonder yeah. which kind of rider is going to get to the top there. Well, in the end, Caruso did, and only just held off Giacomo Nizzolo, who finished in second place, and a bunch of other riders. It was thrilling, and the reason that it kind of mattered, that race, is because he hasn't won a bicycle race um, in his own right since 2013, and I think he's only got two or three professional wins in the entirety of his career because most of his victories David mm. have come in um, the team time trial he was an absolutely critical part of BMC's all conquering team time trial outfit wasn't it You're, you've raised a so finger as if you've spotted yeah, a, he was. a fact in, I spotted something no, in the sense that I think they're, they're very close to beginning the the proper start of Mont Ventoux 16.4 Ks if this is the Bedouin side then they've only got about 500 a k or so left until they do the sharp left, and then they begin the the climb up to Chalet Renard. There's about and what it's... 40 riders left. There's mixed teams now. So Cofferty's helping Astana. Uh, I did see another team, a red guy. <laughs> but um, but yeah, this red is guy. we're now in the kind of the final yeah. phase before they hit. But uh, yeah, so this is this is about to kick off. So just to to segue back to where we were. Caruso always reminds me, for some reason, and I hope I'm I'm not comparing them uh, wrongly, is the the wonderful uh, Scarponi, Scarponi, who was such a great rider and such a great domestique, but could win in his own right, and was was respected and loved by the whole peloton. And Caruso kind of reminds me a lot of Scarponi. Scarponi was uh, such a he ha- he had such an amazing reputation. And, and respect across nationalities and teams. And Caruso's a bit like that. He's not quite as charismatic, if you like, as Scarponi was, but it, that's what Caruso reminds me of. I think it's a lovely comparison, and I think it's actually borne out by the way they hold themselves on the bike as well. They're both stylists, mm-hmm. aren't they? Very um, Scarponi was beautiful to watch, and, um, and Caruso has got that same kind of classic Italian pedal stroke. Talking of which, Vincenzo Nibali big hit out for him yesterday. He was in Milano Torino in support Ooh. of Matteo Moschetti, who's this 23-year-old Italian sprinter who didn't actually feature in the final. He might have got held up in the crash, I don't know. Um but uh, he was supporting his young teammate, but man, he did a lot of work on the front. You know, and I suspect with Nibali 
Um, I, I suspect that that was done for a reason that isn't all about Matteo Moschetti. It's probably divided equally. No, no. <laughs> I think there's a bit of Vincenzo Nibali and Milan San Remo We've. There. I think I think you and I have discussed this so many times in our commentary over the years. Is Nibali is the the king of preparing for an objective, and he doesn't let his ego get in the way. Uh, so you, there is a kind of a perception that maybe he's uh, sacrificing himself for teammates. No, he's training for himself, but he actually uses that as a as a means to to better the team and him. I have just driven over the last three climbs so of um, Milan Sanremo on my way here to refamiliarize myself with the Cipressa and the Poggio, which are very well known, but also the Colle di Nava climb, which has come about as a result of the route change because the mayors of various different Ligurian cities um, south of Sanremo all said we don't want the race to come through this year. Um, that that long hundred kilometers of that. now yeah. the reason for that is uh, instantly you might think oh coronavirus COVID infections and all that sort of thing actually that's not the reason it's almost the opposite of that in that they have been starved of tourist trade thus far and we're in august now the italians are on holiday and they want their beaches and their cafes and restaurants full and they'd rather not have closed roads on a saturday in the middle of august so that's the reason why uh, we're skirting that it brings this new climb into play which if you look at the the um uh, profile looks like it might be uh, quite significant uh, it, it isn't really. It's um, not. <laughs> it's, it's really long, but we drove over it. And the, yeah. the gradient doesn't get over 3 or 4%, 5% at maximum, the whole way up, uh, sort of 15-kilometer climb. However, when they get to the top of it and they start to drop down onto the coast, the, the first 10 kilometers or so of the descent are terrifying. They're like the Poggio descent, but longer. And um, I'm wondering whether huh. that would be... that would. Th- be a factor in the thinking of how it's raced because you're not going to drop i don't think the sprinters on the climb itself but you can put them on the back foot and you can put them down the line because by the time that the peloton and remember how big the milan san remo peloton is by the time it gets over onto that descent and they string it out and attack it you could have you could have the the, the sprinters in a really disadvantageous position which they've got time to get back on once they hit the coast but it'll come at a cost so that's my reading yeah, of that well, one. Yeah, well, and I think, yeah, I, I'll take your reading. I think with Milan Serena, was always such a, a, a wonderful race in that respect. You just kind of, you know what's going to happen. But, and then it does, but doesn't. It's like, it's kind of, it's, and especially with a new route, with this fresh peloton at this time of year, we may as well consider it a completely new race. There's no precedent. So we're literally dealing with a completely brand new classic yeah, yeah. on Saturday. I think, Sunday, I think that's right. I think there's, that's right. No, there's no point in comparing. You have, yeah. uh, by the way, you've written, put those in your show notes as well. You've written a really nice blog about Milan San Remo, haven't you, um, on the Chapter 3 website. So uh, yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah, on Chapter 3, like it, yeah. like you did with your Fabio thing. It's, yeah. I Stick that down. To, yeah, Milan San Remo. So I'll put that in the show notes as Make well. Make a little note. Ned, I'm going to have to go and do this call. All right. I tell you what we should do, yep. perhaps as a, a footnote, either as a micro uh, Never Strays Far or a catch-up after the race, because you can, I'll, I'll then listen to this and, and find out what happened. Well, or not, uh, yeah. After you've kind of explained to the listener. And um, we should talk about Von 2 as well. Seems like a good, as good a time as any for us. Well, I think next time next time we talk, David, we'll talk Milan San Remo and we'll talk Mon Von 2. How does that sound? That sounds like a great plan. Yep. All right. Speak to okay. you soon. Wonderful. Okay. Speak to you soon. Bye. So as David Miller goes, I turn my attention to the television 
and I will bring you the closing stages of the Mont, whatever it's called, the race that's on the telly now, the Denivile, whatever it's called. Well, the voice you can hear belongs to uh, Andrea De Luca, the main uh, cycling commentator for Rai Sports on Italian television. I'm watching the bike race in San Remo. And uh, 10 kilometres to go on the climb. Edward Ravazzi from UAE Team Emirates, the teammate of Fabiaru, has uh, launched an attack from a group of favourites, which is no more than about 10 strong. And Pierre Latour from AG2R La Mondiale has gone after him. So Pierre Latour, just uh, and Ravazzi, who looks like he's fading, are dangling off the front of the group. Latour has actually got to the front now. Astana still leading the way. Interestingly, it looks as though Vlasov is sitting on Miguel Angel Lopez's wheel. Which of them will uh, go better today, Miguel Angel Lopez or Alexander Vlasov? Nairi Quintana is still very much there. So too is Jesus Herrada, who won this race last year. And Richie Port still in the group of favourites, but Latour in the front with 9.5 to go. Oh, Miguel Angel Lopez has cracked just off the back now. So that is something of a surprise. The Colombian fading. But Miguel Angel Lopez is losing contact with the front of the race. So Astana beginning to whittle down and he's on the radio to say he's been dropped. So Pierre Latour still out the front with 8.6 kilometres to go. It's boiling hot. He's uh, unzipped fully. His Pierre Latour is grimacing. Sweat just rolling off him as they snake their way through the wooded climb up to Chalet Renard. But uh, absolutely no respite from the heat. They're not high enough yet on Mont Ventoux to get any kind of benefit from that. It's just suffering. In the meantime, Trek Segafredo have control of the group now, which is about 12, 14 strong. They've got both Giulio Ciccone, Richie Port, and of course Kenny Elisande as well in their ranks, with Tom Scrinch doing the work on the front. So good showing from Trek Segafredo. Well, you'd have to go back a long time to see Kofidis riding on a big race and a big climb like this, but they've got three riders in this group. Jesus Herrada and Guillaume Martin, the favourites, but they've also got uh, Fernando Barcelo another Spanish rider, and they've got three in a group that's only about eight or nine strong. Fabio Aru is still there. Nara Quintana is there, but he's drifted towards the back, and he's got absolutely no teammates to support him. As Tom Scunch's turn for uh, Trek Segafredo is over. 7.7 kilometers to go. And Guillaume Martin has attacked. So Martin now, the little French climber, is in the gap between the Astana-led main group with Quintana and the rest of them still there, and Pierre Latour, who's still 12 seconds in, in absolute agony. So two Frenchmen now at the front of the Mont Ventoux race. Martin's looking really good, though. And in this kind of company, this kind of race, I don't think I've seen Martin in this position too often. Occasionally he fades historically towards the top and does like to attack early. I wonder if he can make this one stick. He's looking good. He's nearly over through that 12-second gap, and he's... Very, very close to getting on the wheel of Pierre Latour, who now knows he's coming. A couple of little counter-attacks from the group of favourites. The first one coming from Kenny Elisande, Trek Segafredo. He's gone back, though. And it's Tahada, the uh, Colombian climber, domestique for Astana, who shut him down. And then Fabi Aru attacked and was duly shut down by Tahada as well. So that's a pretty immense ride from the Colombian. Oh, Pierre Latour's just cracked. 
They've taken the um, kilometres to go off the screen, so I'm not sure. That I think they're fairly close to the top of the Chalet Renard climb. And Guillaume Martin, I don't think he's ever raced before like this. He is looking beautifully composed, absolutely steady on the bike. He's found a terrific rhythm here, and he just uh, unleashed a ferocious attack. Latour battled to stay on his wheel for about 100 metres and now admits defeat. But it was... Uh, that was incredibly impressive from Guillaume Mata, and I think his advantage over a slightly disjointed chase with very few domestiques left, and that's the point, uh, back in that group of favourites, is uh, growing. So Mata looking excellent here. Well, I offer our entire listenership an apology here because I, I hadn't realised that uh, this race does go all the way to the top. That's why I was saying... <laughs> Chaos. That's why I was saying he was very close to the top here because I recognised how near he was to Chalet Renard. But uh, Guillaume Martin has just flown past Chalet Renard. And obviously, if I'd done my research properly, I would have realised that the race finishes at the top of Mont Ventoux. So Oni Plows, he's got a 20-second lead, though, over the group. And uh, Pierre Latour is still caught in no man's land. The group now has 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 riders in it, including Harold Tejada. Uh, from Astana and Miguel Angel Lopez I think has got back on so Astana have got three riders in there but Lopez did sh show signs of weakness Vlasov has just been sitting in third or fourth wheel the whole time Lopez is back on but I have to say the other Colombian Harold Tejada is MVP in many ways in that group he's shut down the attack of Fabio Arun he's shut down the attack of Kenny Elisond and he's still there don't know anything about him signed for Astana from the Medellin team uh, for 2020, that's one for Matt Rendell. Vlasov attacks, 4.5 kilometres to go. Alexander Vlasov just peeled off to the side of the line. He'd been very disciplined up till that point, and you thought, what's he doing? He spat out Kenny Elisand. Richie Port is going after him with Nairo Quintana on his wheel. But Vlasov, well, his attack was set up by another huge turn by Tejada. And that meant that the Russian chose his moment to attack. He's already got to Pierre Latour. It won't be long before he drops Pierre Latour, I don't think. And Richie Port and Nairo Quintana of the favourites are trying to get across to Vlasov. He's gone with 4.5 kilometres remaining. But Guillaume Martin is still 24 seconds further up the road. Vlasov now has dropped Pierre Latour and is riding away from the race looking very, very composed indeed. And Quintana drops away, around about 4k to go, can no longer hold Richie Port's wheel. Port now on his own, out of the saddle, 4k to go. He's got that blue jersey in sight and he's closing into Alexander Vlasov and will be joining him, I think, fairly soon. But Quintana, perhaps surprisingly after that fantastic form that he showed pre-lockdown, early sign of a little bit of weakness on this climb and I don't think he'll be winning from there. Uh, Guillaume Martin, we haven't seen him for quite a while. He still has a healthy lead to defend. But Vlasov and Port uh, will, I think, come together fairly soon. Or at least that's what Port has got in mind. But Vlasov looking excellent. And Port having an, a really good day in the saddle. 3.6k to go. And Vlasov has caught Martin. Martin, perhaps surprised to see that blue jersey there. Out of the saddle and sprinting together on his wheel. Vlasov is just flying up this climb at the moment. Martin just beginning to suffer. And uh, he's able to just hold on to the wheel of Alexander Vlasov for now with 3.5k to go. And Richie Port hasn't quite made the junction across to Vlasov just yet. So Vlasov at the front of the race with 3.4k to go. And 2.8k to go. Martin is dropped. Vlasov is on his own. And Richie Port is 
Coming up level now with Martin. Martin's virtually come to a standstill. Richie Porte's still going well. And I think he's just going to sweep past the Frenchman into second place. So Martin, once again, did he just go a little bit too early? Bite off more than he can chew. Richie Porte now is the next wheel that Martin tries to hold on to. But Porte is not closing the gap to Vlasov. So Vlasov very much in the box seat now as the lunar landscape unfolds before us and the helicopter reveals the snaking road that leads all the way up to the meteorological station right at the top of Mont Ventoux. Meanwhile, further back down the mountain, Miguel Angel Lopez and Nairo Quintana, two beaten Colombians on the day, form a little two-man ride as the uh, Provencal countryside unfolds behind them in these clear blue skies, baking heat, Mont Ventoux at its very best and Alexander Vlasov if he cares to look round, we'll see a tenacious Richie Port still about 30 or 40 metres behind him. And now Mata is dropped by Port. Well inside the final kilometre, now long past the Tom Simpson Memorial, and uh, a dogged Richie Port hasn't given up, but he's making no headway, no progress into eating into the margin of victory that Alexander Vlasov, I think, is going to enjoy here. Fabio Aru has attacked from the minor placings and could well be riding himself into third place on the mountain. Richie Port, very determined ride from him, but Alexander Vlasov, I think, is going to take this one home. 24-year-old Russian rider who had a really wonderful start to the year, taking a stage of the Tour de la Provence and finishing in second in the general classification. After lockdown finished, he actually finished third in the uh, Sibiu Tour in Romania, won by Border Hansgrohe's Gregor Mühlberger. And then it was at the Occitanie that he really shone. Third place there behind Sivakov and Bernal, and only 23 seconds down on GC. He's going to take this win, though, and I think I'm going to let I'm going to sit back and let uh, Andrea De Luca call it home for Italian television. And that was that. Thank you very much for listening once again to Never Strays Far, and we'll go again and uh, we'll have a little bit of chat about Milan San Remo. Whoever's going to win that, probably not Peter again.